Hey there, my name is Eric Massey. I have a Master of Divinity from Abilene Christian University. I've worked as a healthcare chaplain and as a young adult minister, and higher education was never something that was really emphasized when I was discerning my call to ministry. Honestly, I never thought I would go to seminary. Thankfully, and to my surprise, seminary was one of the best decisions that I ever made in my whole life. It textured and colored my faith in a way that I never thought was possible, and I cannot imagine my faith without it. Which has led me to wonder if there's a way to talk about how seminary isn't the scary, antiquated, or unnecessary thing we might think it to be. On this podcast, we'll introduce you to seminary professors talking about their areas of expertise to introduce you to topics that you might hear in seminary, but not necessarily every Sunday school class. So, whether you've been in ministry a long time or are just now starting to discern a call, or just like hearing about theology and history and higher education in the Christian world, this is probably the podcast for you. This is Seminary Isn't Scary. On this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Frederick Aquino, professor and director of the Master of Arts in Theology program at Abilene Christian University. And we'll be talking about canonical theism, which is a project that he and many others undertook to outline a theological framework that helps Christians understand how theology might impact and inform their everyday life of faith. And we'll be asking questions like, do Christians have to comprehend everything about their experience of God in order to be Christians? Or can they just sort of work with the experiences they have in an honest and thoughtful way? I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Frederick Aquino. Welcome, everyone, to Seminary's Not Scary. My name is Eric Massey, and I'm here with Dr. Frederick Aquino, uh, who's professor at the Graduate School of Theology. Thanks for being here. Thanks. And I'm not scared. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, to get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am currently professor of theology and philosophy in the Graduate School of Theology at ACU, and I'm also the director of our undergrad philosophy minor at ACU. I'm married to Michelle, who's a school teacher in Abilene, Texas. I have a son, David, a daughter, Elizabeth. Originally, I grew up in Niagara Falls, New York. However, I've been in Texas since 1986 and in the Graduate School of Theology since 1998. Right on. It's a good chunk of time hanging out in Abilene, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been here for a while. Yeah, almost 22 years now as a professor. Right on. Pretty so, um, yeah, tell me a bit about how, how, do you, how did you get into biblical studies and theology? Um, whew, that's a long story, so I'll try <laughs> to give you a short version of it. Um, I grew up in a religious home, but in high school, I, I would say I lost my faith. I went in the United States Air Force as a firefighter and rediscovered my Christian faith in and through that experience. And so probably mid part of my time in the Air Force, I discovered I wanted to do, so, I wanted to do something else. Hmm. Um, and so I spent my time with, as a firefighter, you get 24 hours on and off. So you work 24 hours, and then the next day you get off. On my days off, I would go with a local minister in a small church and uh, help him do whatever he needed to, to be done mm. in terms of ministry 
you know, visiting the sick or, or whatever. And so at some point, uh, probably in my third year of the Air Force, I thought, I, I think I want to do full-time ministry. Mm. So I, I explored that. I started my undergrad uh, in biblical studies. And what I discovered there was, interestingly, that um, I had a desire for ministry, but I also had a desire for scholarship. Mm. And so I, at least I was never told both of those were uh, sort of antithetical to one another. So in other words, if you're a minister, you can't be a scholar. If you're a scholar, yeah. you can't be a minister. So I I started my undergrad degree in biblical studies here, and maybe we can stop there if, if there, you want more details about life after I, that. Or Yeah, I don't know. I think... Um... I think it is fascinating that you spent time in the the military before mm-hmm. coming in. I think most people, uh, I know as I experienced you, um, we've only seen the biblical scholars, <laughs> theologian yeah, side. Yeah. Um, and so I think for the for most of us, when you you sort of drop, oh yeah, I was in a, a firefighter in in the air force. We all just take a a turn and we're like, wait, what? What was that like? No, I wasn't an academic at all. Um, I, I, I completed my high school education. But I had no plans to go to college. Sure. I went in the Air Force and didn't start college until I was about 23. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. So I, I didn't plan this. I didn't. Yeah. When I was in high school, I didn't think. The last thing I thought I would ever do was enter a church door or um, even remotely think of what we call ministry now or yeah. scholarship. I was pretty good in school, but I didn't care when I was in high school. Um, I mean, I did enough to, to get by. Yeah. That's I I'm really fascinated by that because <laughs> you 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 brought up already this sort of distinction that I think a lot of us end up sort of accidentally making that there's some sort of demarcation between ministry and academia. But for you, you're sort of describing that experience didn't happen for you. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. Um, well, as I said, I am a professor here in the Graduate School of Theology. I've been here for almost 22 years. Um, I also am a part-time, I'd say, part-time preaching minister at the Avenue B Church of Christ in Ballinger, Texas. Okay. So in front of me right now, and as part of my homework, I have reread, is a book entitled Canonical Theism, A Proposal for Theology in the Church. Uh, And this is a a larger project that you were a part of. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of, there's three editors and a bunch of contributors. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your hand in the process and and what that looked like. Yeah. So if you, well, I'll I'll assume when or if somebody picks this book up, they're going to notice 30 theses in the beginning of the book, which are statements that all of us agreed to. Um, Billy was the the one who uh, primarily formed these. And then we read him and we said, yeah, yeah, sign me up. And so when you read the first part, the assumption here is uh, canonical theism is not to be identified with any particular school of thought like, you know, open theism, classical theism, process theism. So in other words, these are all attempts to make sense of theism. Canonical theism is pretty minimal in that respect. So the first part of the book tries to show that um, ontology, that is what is, is prior to epistemology. And so Christians may encounter God prior to having full-blown theories of knowledge and all that worked out. And so that's what the book tries to show, is that there are these canonical practices that were a means of grace. What I decided to do 
was decided to really take up Thesis 22. Because one of, one of the assumptions might be, this sounds like a bunch of anti-intellectualism. These guys are just trying to get out of really hard epistemological work. And so canonical theism is just an excuse for laziness or fideism or belief without evidence. And so what I did is I, I took Thesis 22 and a few others and said, canonical theism doesn't require rigorous epistemological work, but it certainly generates it. So in other words, questions might stop popping out popping up about, you know, what does it mean when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God? So is purity of heart a necessary condition to seeing God? And so what I did in my essay was I took the Philokalia, these mystical writings, and tried to think about in what sense these writings presume the importance of what we would call intellectual virtues. Um, and so I did the epistemology side of the equation, which the book does not um, annul or, or get rid of. It just says primarily canonical theism is focusing on the soteriological function of these, of these materials, you know, the, the transformative dimension, which, by the way, doesn't mean it lacks information because one reader said, so formation, it sounds like formation without information. No, no, no. It, formation includes information, but then the question is, how do we make philosophical sense of statements like the one in, in Matthew 5, 8? So in my essay, I tried to think more explicitly about the idea of a theologian and what are the epistemic virtues of a theologian proper. When I was a student here, I also did an MA and an MDiv, again, with the idea of wanting to do both ministry and scholarship. I thought I was going to be a biblical scholar. That's the, that was the plan. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Childers and Kurt Nickham and several of us were all pretty much in the same program at the same time, and we, we were all... I think, slated to do what we would call biblical studies. That's the thing you do when you're in the restoration movement, right? You yeah. read the Bible, you study the Bible. And what I discovered was I had some really deep philosophical questions that were interesting to me, like, for example, the relationship between faith and reason. Mm. Uh, is it possible to believe in God and be reasonable in doing that? Um, or what's the relationship between science and religion? Mm. Um, things like that. Um, how do you make sense of tragedies in the world? And so what I discovered was, no, no offense to biblical scholarship, <laughs> I didn't think that was going to help me pursue those questions. And so I decided to do a PhD in systematic theology at SMU, and I studied with William Abraham, yeah. otherwise known as Billy. Let's <laughs> call him Billy. Um, and what I discovered uh, is that he had been working on these very questions, mm. uh, the relationship between faith and reason. And so in the mid-90s, probably late 90s, he started, uh, he wrote a book, which was published in 98, on canon and criterion. And that book tries to show that the, the word canon has been used exclusively with reference to scripture. Yeah. And it's been used to say that scripture is kind of the norm by which you evaluate everything. Sure. Or most things, right? So... So if you remember the evolution-creation controversy, yeah. the reason that starts is that everyone, everyone's going to, or people that are committed to the idea of canon being normative or an epistemic norm, is they're going to say this norms the way we think about the natural world. Yeah. So now you have, a, you have a dichotomy between science and religion, right? Science has its protocol for doing what it does. And if canon is exclusively a norm in the way it's been used, then it now is a criterion by which you evaluate claims with respect to the natural world. 
Yeah. So what Billy was working on was trying to rethink the notion of canon. Like, what does it really mean when we, when we use the word canon and we apply it to Scripture? Yeah. What he, what he found out was actually in an early church, canon probably meant a list. Mm-hmm. So you have a list of fathers, you have a list of Scripture books in the Bible, you have a list of liturgical practices, a list of creeds. And these were primarily a means of grace, right? So mm-hmm. in other words... People can encounter God in and through Scripture and in, through liturgy. And so these canons, or as we think of the word canon, became uh, singular, became plural, right? Mm. So we, we start applying canon to a wide range of practices that were largely formational, meaning they were, they were put in place to form and sustain Christians in the life of God. And so what initially we thought uh, of canon maybe perhaps as a, as a philosophical or epistemic criterion ends up being viewed more as a, a means of grace. Okay. So Billy coined the expression canonical theism, okay. which is a way to say that, um, again, it, it isn't that the Bible and the creeds and all of these things, that they're not making truth claims. They are. So like Mark 1, 1 says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's a truth claim. What they don't do is they don't define for you or clarify for you how those claims are justified. Mm. And in epistemology, that's largely what you do is you try to come up with theories of knowledge or what makes something knowledge. Typically, it has to be true. It has to be believed. It has to be justified. Or I won't get too technical. <laughs> there may be in a, There may be some modification of that. Or... What uh, determines whether a belief is true or false? Yeah. Those are all questions that people ask in a discipline called epistemology, which is a theory of knowledge yeah. and related goods. So, you know, something true, is it justified? It, can, it, can it be known? And so what we, what we discovered with canonical theism was that I, I doubt, uh, having read the fathers, I doubt that when I read them, having read the scriptural writers, that what they're engaged in is that kind of enterprise primarily, mm. right? The enterprise that says this is how we justify what we believe. No, they were writing to um, various believers and communities. And um, Paul, you know, sharing his encounter with Jesus, which clearly Paul is making truth claims. He's, yeah. he's saying this happened. But what Paul is not doing is laying out a theory of justification by which he can determine the truth or falsity of those experiences. Mm. So what canonical theism does is it makes a distinction between what is real, right, what is, which is ontology, a field of study on the nature of what is, and epistemology, Mm. a theory of how we know what we know. And so instead of treating the ontological aspects of the faith, that is, you know, a person has a religious experience, um, <laughs> upon further reflection, they can certainly figure out whether that, that, that experience is veridical or it happened, it's true, they weren't delusional, they weren't drinking bad milk or they had <laughs> bad tacos or, you know, whatever. So what we, what we tried to figure out then was how to best convey this distinction between what is mm. and what we think about it. Okay, yeah. And how we claim to know things about it. And so it's an invitation for Christians to see this larger heritage of the canonical heritage as being formational. Yeah. Of helping people to be formed 
and sustained in the life of God. And then clearly, if need be, because we're all curious, right? Sure. We all want to know whether these claims are true. <laughs> then we go about doing that formally. You know, mm -hmm. we, we, we do what epistemologists do. That is those who are in a position to do that, to figure yeah. out whether our beliefs are true, whether they're justified, whether they constitute knowledge, whether they lead to wisdom or understanding. And those are all really great things. However, we don't think those are preconditions to being mm. a Christian. And we don't believe you have to be a particular kind, take up a particular kind of epistemological theory to be a Christian. So you could be a Lockean, you could be a Platonist, you could be a Neoplatonist, you could be an Aristotelian, you could be a Kantian, you could be a feminist, you can, I mean, all of these are yeah. particular ways to make sense of things, but they're not a precondition. In fact, we know from early Christian uh, history that uh, there were various options for Christians. Um, there were some that were Platonist or Neoplatonist or Aristotelians or combination. Or later in the modern period, we know that there were Lockeans. We know that there were, yeah. you know, people who took these particular view or Thomist or yeah. followers of Aquinas. But those were all what I would call secondary matters, meaning we're not we're now trying to make good on the philosophical task of figuring out what we believe is true. Yeah. Um, is it clear? Does it make sense? Does it fit together? Those are all great things. But there, you know, if you, you, um, you meet a person who encounters Jesus, has a, has a religious experience, and then you say to that person, hold on, before you had that experience, you had to have some theory of knowledge worked out, <laughs> or you had to, some, had, to, had, to, had to have some criterion worked out mm. by which you could determine in advance the nature of that experience. No, that's not how it goes. Yeah. You know, we would be you're married, right, Eric? Yes. I'm I am. married. Yeah. I've been married for, for a while. I, I won't say. Um, <laughs> but I don't think in my right mind I would have said back then I knew exactly what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But I fully understood everything. Now, upon further reflection, looking back, I can, I can see where I went astray. I can see where I made some bad choices. I was immature. But it didn't annul mm. the commitment I made to my wife yeah. uh, a bit ago. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. does, that, does that help? Yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I think um, something I appreciate about this sort of project is it does, it does draw attention to uh, – I think the pressure we put on ourselves in certain ways uh, of the faith that would say something like if you don't believe properly, you're kind of in, in trouble. And it does sort of – it, it puts a lot of our experiences of God sort of at, at risk <laughs> if right. we're not in the right frame of mind, right. um, which I think if you ask most people about their religious experience, their experience with God, they would probably not – say that they needed to have a whole preconceived system in which to understand their experience before the experience happened. Right. I think if that were the case, it would kind of put, a, put us in a pretty rough spot when it <laughs> comes to our relationships with right. God. Well, we know this from the Gospels, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Peter, at one point, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? Peter gives the right answer. Mm -hmm. he, he says, you are. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. And then two seconds later, Jesus is rebuking Peter, or Peter's rebuking Jesus because yeah. he thinks he's got it wrong. And yeah. Peter says to him, get behind me, Satan, you don't understand. So in other words, the same guy who mm. said the right thing wasn't fully understanding what was entailed in the statement that he was making. Jesus didn't say, 
you know, he did say get behind me. Yeah. But he didn't, he didn't say get out, leave me, don't ever come back, right? He, sure. In fact, we know the disciples on many occasions misunderstand what he's saying. And he still dies for them. And he still mm. says, I'll, I'll come back and meet you. So in other words, what I don't want to encourage is getting false beliefs. Yeah. I just want to say to the public, <laughs> I'm not an advocate of, hey, it's good to have false beliefs. It makes you a better Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, um, but as, as we know, as fallible human beings, we're going to get things wrong. Um, mm. And hopefully we're open to be, and this is another thing about canonical theism, is it, re- it really calls for people to have a repentant, open mind. Um, and, and getting the faith right is a, is a very, difficult, um, very difficult enterprise. I mean, it takes a lot of time if you're going to do it formally in the way, that, the way I'm describing. That makes sense. Um, I'm curious now, so mm-hmm. canonical theism being sort of a, a theological approach uh, to our faiths, mm-hmm. how with the body of works that you've included, uh, scripture, liturgy, the Desert Fathers and Mothers, and, and the whole wealth of tradition that, that Christians can pull from, how did you guys decide mm. where those lines are, what gets included, what doesn't? Or would you even say that you guys make any distinctions on that note? Well, I mean, uh, Billy is the, like I said, he coined the expression. And so I think I think what he um, decided was let's let's start after the first millennium before the schism, um, and look at what Christians prior to the Reformation, prior to the yeah. schism, thought. And what we discover is, I mean, you know, there's some disagreement. Clearly, there's going to be disagreement on doctrinal matters as you as you read Christian history, but it's very clear they're all appealing to fairly similar resources. So they're appealing to, in some sense, scripture. Clearly, there's there's no doubt, and and a listener is going to be worried. Are we like trivializing and relativizing scripture? No, I think we would all say scripture is, in terms of proximity, it is the closest thing to divine revelation, mm-hmm. comparatively speaking. So, if you want to know in what way God's been revealed, scripture is going to give you access to that in some sense, with with a clear distinction between revelation and how that's taken up by the writers of scripture or by those who are witnesses. But what we discovered is, you know, if you asked early Christians um, what would be important to do to become a Christian, they clearly catechesis and be instructed in the faith. Clearly, they would say you probably should go where Christians are worshiping because liturgy is also in, if, if formational. Um, and so all of these things that we're mentioning are there, the rule of faith, that is the rule that's in place before Scripture is properly canonized. Um, it's not properly canonized until probably the 4th or 5th century. In terms of formal decisions, clearly their scripture, uh, the writings are being transmitted and people are hearing those. And so we're not saying they didn't have access to scripture. But, you know, clearly uh, Nicene Creed, even though there are disagreements over that, that becomes pretty constitutive for early, early Christian witness, uh, you know, the Apostles' Creed. So what we're saying is there's like a matrix of, of practices and materials and, and people that function as a heritage. Now, again, you know, somebody would say, well, you know, again, if you're using the word canon as a litmus test or as a criterion, then what you're going to do is you're going to worry about, like, when do you stop? How far do you mm-hmm. go? But most of these practices, I, I think if you look at Orthodox and Catholics, 
They're going to agree on a whole lot of these resources. They're going to disagree on some things like papal authority or, uh, or things like that. And that really doesn't happen as early as some would like us to believe. Yeah. So I, I don't sense. know in terms of, you know, could you extend it? I, I'm, I'm not sure. I would just say these resources are fairly common in, in early Christian practices, um, I, I would say. With some, again, the historians are going to come in, mess things up a little bit and tell us how complicated. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. But liturgically, uh, these things would have been, I think, in, in place pretty early. Yeah. With some development in time, you know, over a period of time, you're going to, you know, uh, you're going to have Christological reflection, reflection on the Holy Spirit, all those things. But our whole point is prior to those agreements, prior to those theological statements, God is working in and through the world without all of these decisions being formalized and um, determined by an explicit epistemology. So something ontological is happening. And then later on, Christians start to say, hey, what do we do with this whole business of salvation? Well, then we start coming up with theories and use metaphors to explain atonement, right? But um, that's not a precondition to, to experiencing the salvific work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, something else I was really curious about is there's uh, obviously a, a whole group of people that contributed to this volume <laughs> yeah. uh, from a pretty wide mm-hmm. swath of different Christian traditions. Mm-hmm. And I did notice that there's a decent amount of pulling from Eastern Orthodox theology <laughs> on this front. Yeah. And so I'm curious to hear you speak to that. Well, actually, you know, there, some of the people in in the group were Methodists, some uh, church, two Church of Christ people, um, Anglo-Catholic, um, even an Orthodox Christian, Paul Gavrilouk. Um So I, I can't speak for the group, and I, I won't speak for uh, Billy. I'm pretty convinced that what's important for us would be the patristic slash medieval up to a point, expressions in the tradition. And it's clear that you'd say, well, it sounds orthodox. Well, because prior to the Reformation, you you have the essentially orthodox and Catholic um, traditions. Mm. And even that gets to be tricky in terms of the way you slice that up. So yes, clearly in that sense, uh, but I wouldn't say it's predominantly or only motivated by, let's go back to the orthodox tradition. Because uh, if that's the case, then why don't we just go to the Orthodox tradition and say, we give in. <laughs> we want to be canonical theists. Yeah. Um, and I, I think they would probably say, what, what, what are you talking about? Um, we already have these in place, right? We, so the assumption would be, we already have what you guys are looking for. But we're, we're actually extending this to all the expressions of the Christian tradition, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. In many ways, this project is what I would call a post-Protestant project. It's not saying that the Reformation now is the litmus test for what makes Protestants Christians. Uh, there's, there's a return to the great tradition to see what it means to actually retrieve these sources that we believe have um, healing significance, meaning that people, if they draw from them soteriologically, can be refashioned, maybe even redirected to uh, what the aim of church is, right, which is to bring people to uh, saving faith in, in God in and through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. 
Yeah, and it, so I, and I, I don't what I wouldn't want to say. I think others wouldn't want to say. Here, here's what we did find out: most of us, when we tried to bring our traditions to bear on this, you would see certain things being elevated over against other things. So I think the group wouldn't have said there was a consensus on on that, like how to reappropriate this material as Anglicans or as Methodist or especially as Church of Christ folks. I mean, this would be, this would be an adventure for folks in, in Churches of Christ because now you're saying there's more, there's more to play with, there's more to appeal to than what we've called the canon of Scripture. Yeah, and I'm curious about, this seems like a pretty bold move to church unity or at least something that could, could sort of push us that direction. Uh, is that sort of the spirit in which this was this was thought up and, and studied in, or is, is this just sort of something you guys were observing and do with it what we will? Um, hmm, interesting. So on one level, this is an ecumenical project, no doubt about it. Uh, it's a call for all Christians to go back, look at these materials, stop reading them primarily as textbooks in epistemology, or as criteria by which you determine whether beliefs are true or false. So in that sense, we're saying to all, we've set up our own problem by making these sources the basis for how we know things in some, in some ways. So in other words, you can make truth claims all day long, but if you're going to assess those epistemically, you're going to need to do epistemology proper. So it's ecumenical insofar as we want all to go back and look at these sources in a way that might help us to work through the division that's currently in the church, the fracture, the fragments, painful fragments. But we're not naive to think it's as simple as going back and everyone's going to say in a happy, clappy fashion, great, we're all united back in Christ. No, because we're going to have hard discussions on papal infallibility, infallibility of Scripture, and all these things that Christians have fought over, the inspiration of Scripture. And we're going to try to figure out if we're going to do that epistemically, it's going to be a very long, long, long evening. Um, <laughs> and so I, what I would say is we're not, we don't, we're not trying to grow um, canonical theistic churches. Mm. Uh, I mean, we want, we want many, in many ways, we want Christians to go back and visit this. And we hope there will be some therapy that happens in the process but, um, you know, I don't think Rome is going to say um, the Pope doesn't have any epistemic authority in any sense. Um, I think certain Christians are going to say that the Bible doesn't have epistemic authority. So there are going to be real disputes epistemically over what we mean when we say the Bible's authoritative, for example. In what sense is it authoritative? With respect to what? Hmm. How to do physics? How to do biology? Uh, and so those kinds of questions... Uh, in, in, in the way I've stipulated it. Presume if there is ecumenism in this project, which I think there is, it isn't let's go back to, let's reinvent the wheel and let's go back to the good old days and we'll just get over our divisions and mistakes. Uh, I, I don't think initially um, I would say retrospectively or even going into this that we thought this would be an easy, easy thing to do. Yeah. Well, it, in fact, we've had discussions with others um, you know, and, and certain Catholics will say, no, no, we don't believe the Pope has epistemic authority. And then you start, like Mark Paul, who's one of the contributors, he wrote a whole book on papal infallibility. Hmm. Um, and a, as, a, as a person in Church of Christ, trying to make sense of that 
and had people on his committee, his dissertation committee, that were Roman Catholics. So really interesting concepts. But um, I'm not sure ecumenism is going to be a positive thing if those things are left at the door. So I think those are some hard conversations. Polity, how do we structure the church? The, the authority of the various offices of the church, all those kinds of things that are, that are really difficult, I think. So we, we're not envisioning that this miracle take care of all that. We're simply saying, let's make a distinction between the ontology of the faith, what it is, and then how we come to make sense of it, the various resources we use to do that, whether it's scripture, reason, tradition. Those are all great questions, but those are really largely epistemological questions that have to be determined in a secondary sense rather than it being the primary thing that drives this discussion. And that's hard for people to get because typically what they think is in order to have a conversation, we have to be able to know how we know and why we know in order to have that conversation. So I'm curious about – so say say a minister reads this mm-hmm. and is convinced that this project is worthwhile. Amen. What, what's, the, what's the next step? How does a, how does a minister take a proposal like this and, and start putting some things on the ground? Yeah, I, I, and one of the things – I mean I've been using something like this book uh, for a while now. And one of the things that I get from students generally – is this excitement and yet depression because they they might hear me saying, now go back to your church and cram this down people's throats and force them to believe now that they have to be canonical theists to be Christians. That's not what I would say. I would say now what they have to do is they have to re-engage their own tradition in light of this and they have to do it with wisdom and sensitivity um, and care and love. Um, and I think it's happening already in churches. I'll speak to Churches of Christ. I mean, I think now you, you, you see people in our tradition going to retreats, taking trips to monasteries, or wanting to think about spiritual formation and spiritual direction, and all of these things that, again, are happening in what we're describing. But again, it's going to take time for ministers to figure out how to readjust things. And I'd say never do it as a solo act. Make sure your congregation, make sure your parish, make sure your leaders are involved in this. And it's not a solo act. So that's the first thing I would say. Learn to re-engage this and then figure out in what sense this coheres with what you're already doing. So for example, I, I, it's my opinion, I think we have a lot to learn in Churches of Christ about the nature of the Eucharist from other traditions, of what's going on and how to think about it. However, I think there's some high church traditions can learn a lot, learn a lot about preaching from folks who preach in the free church tradition, for example. So it, it's not as though that one, one tradition has it all worked out. It seems to me this would require adjustment, and it's happened. I mean, even within Roman Catholic circles, the, the re-engagement of biblical scholarship would be an example um, of how they've done that in light of their history. And then secondly, I think probably learning how to catechize people on various levels. Um, So you're going to have new new converts. um, You're going to have people who are in the church who may be going through a period of doubt or skepticism or unbelief. And so what you don't want to do is uh, presume a minister is going to be in a position to do that kind of work. 
for a skeptic. So you bring in maybe somebody who's thought about the nature of justification or the nature of knowledge. And so the, the goal here is not for every minister or priest or person to feel the burden of doing it all. It's actually probably learning how to distribute the labor and finding people to do that. Yeah, not being a solo act. And then third, I guess, a reminder to ministers, the key here is not to confuse formative practices with epistemological theorizing. And so I get this, a lot of undergrads, you know, they, they leave church, they come to college, before you know it, they're not sure what they think anymore, and they go back, and the minister tries to, you know, get some real quick solution or some popular book on apologetics. And instead, what I would say is, Find some people who are friendly to the faith, who may actually be Christians, to help you work through that and maybe even meet with these individuals rather than assuming it's the task of the minister to do both, you know, induct people into the faith and also sustain them in and through the kind of philosophical work I'm describing. So what I guess in, in short, people should not feel overwhelmed when they read this this book, they should feel in some sense liberated, liberated from the the perceived task that is that their job is primarily to preach an epistemology or primarily to um, make that epistemology now canonized. And by that we mean the official epistemology of, of the church. God has been working for a long time without the assistance of epistemologists and will continue to do that. Now, I don't mean that to be any intellectual either. There's a place for what I'm describing as the, the task of epistemology. It's just not, shouldn't be catechesis on the initial level of how people come to faith. Unless you've got a R Richard Swinburne, I suppose, or someone <laughs> like that. Uh, somebody who's already doing epistemology and they come, they come into church and, and they want to know something. But I, even knowing Richard, I, I doubt he would do that. He would probably realize the difference between how faith is expressed and how we try to make sense of what's expressed. Sure. Well, I mean, what, what kind of – if this is going to give a minister or, or a, a theology student, Bible student, some sort of liberation in what they're exploring and feeling, what kind of what, – what can they benefit from in terms of – starting to engage material outside of maybe their tradition or um, what they're used to experiencing in the Bible or their, their worship service on mm -hmm. Sunday? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I mean, with the guidance of somebody who perhaps knows the, the minister and knows what might be the appropriate thing to read next or look at, but, you know, just in general, maybe start looking at what early Christians thought. You know, look at some texts. Look at, for example, Christensen's text on the priesthood. It's a, it's a really disturbing text. If you're going to go into the ministry and you read that, you're going to probably say, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that. Or, you know, if you want to think about the nature of the Eucharist or the second person of the Trinity or any of these things or the nature of catechism or baptism or all of these things, start reading or even read some. And again, Understand when you when you when you get historical criticism, and you go back and read these patristic and medieval writers on the scriptures. They're not reading the scriptures in the exact same way that we read them as, as modern people. But maybe just peek in the door a little bit and see how they're starting to read scripture. So, for example, um, Origin on, on on scripture. It's a really extraordinary way to kind of make sense of 
how to deal with this text that at times seems to raise questions about, you know, what's God doing? And Origen thinks largely reading scripture in this way that he describes is therapeutic and spiritual. So reading, reading the text critically may not be contrary to spiritual formation. But again, it's not like everyone has to do it on the same level or, this, or the exact same way. But I would say introduce people or maybe take a class. Um, although a lot of these ministers have. And I think what happens is they've been so deconstructed that they don't know how to put the faith back together, right? And canonical theism is a way of saying you can do that without being intellectually dishonest. Mm. Uh, there's a way to encounter God. And then obviously there, there are going to be things, really tough, difficult questions, for example, like um, does God have emotions? Um, the whole language of impassibility, impassibility. You know, these are really quite difficult questions. Um, you know, all, testimony, what role does testimony play in the transmission of the faith? Well, it's pretty important. And now in epistemology, it's made a comeback. Like we can actually use the word, the T word testimony. So there's really cool stuff on that. But again, back to my point, I would say immerse yourself in these materials. And then when questions come up, find, find the right people to help you make sense of what you're reading. Yeah. And, you know, like the Philoclea, uh, it's a really great collection of text mystical text from the 4th to the 15th century. And it, it's not just, okay, here's what you need to know to be a Christian. It really focuses on some extraordinary things like, does one have to have a pure heart to see God? Does one have to have discernment to be able to make distinctions between what's legitimate, what's illegitimate? Um, and so the focus maybe is on the internalizing of the Christian faith in those texts. It's not, not merely, uh, here's a bunch of information take it and leave and, and you know, be merry. Merry Christmas. You, you get everything. Uh, God doesn't give us the faith with all the midrash included, uh, all the expositions and clarifications of the faith. So there may be some spiritually relevant things that, that are going to happen as a result of reading these texts. That, yeah. Okay. So I think from my angle, from Churches of Christ or the sort of free churches, uh, free church traditions. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a temptation to start feeling a little uncomfortable. Sure. Uh, yes. Especially when no. you've, you've kind of already talked about this. No, no, Eric. Um, it's all easy. It's all good. What are we <laughs> – the Bible is so important to our mm -hmm. tradition, mm -hmm. so important to what we do and how mm -hmm. we think about mm -hmm. our faith. Uh, it's hard not to see this sort of inclusion of a bunch of other material – or and or maybe pulling scripture back a bit, at least in terms of some of the commitments we've made to how we use it. Uh, it's I think it's going to be hard for some of us to not see that as uh, maybe kind of dangerous, maybe sort mm -hmm. of threatening. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious what you would <laughs> what you would say to that. How would you approach that? Yes, uh, we had in fact a recent um, journal issue on this question on the authority of scripture. And I wrote, I wrote a chapter or an article, one of the articles. And so to me, what I agree, I mean, I, I, I it can be um, disarming, right? To someone, uh, it, it sounds like what we're saying is let's replace scripture with these other things, or let's put it in a room with other things and say, it's just one among many things, right? Or something like that. Maybe another way to think about it is something like this. 
um, the subject of theology, the object of theological reflection is God and God's self-disclosure. Like what has God made known to us? If we want to know what if we want to know in some ways anything about God, then obviously Scripture is going to be primary um, in that sense because it's it's the it's the text that is linked with divine revelation. Um, if we want to know about the nature of the universe, or we want to know about uh, how biological life forms work, and we want to know about the uh, nature of electrons, or we want to know about you name it. Would we say the Bible is as authoritative on that as anything else? And so what we have to distinguish, I think, when we're talking about what I, beneath your question is, is the Bible still authoritative, right? I'd say authoritative with respect to what? With respect to what God has made known? Sure, but we also know from Scripture God has revealed himself in many ways, right? Not only through a book, but through a person, through events, and so on. And so we shouldn't be surprised if God um, has chosen to make himself known in, in such a way through a person, testify through a text that we call scripture. But we shouldn't be surprised that we might be able to learn some things about the natural world, about the world outside of merely reading scripture. And I think this is why a lot of people lose their faith is they read the Genesis account and they read the two stories. Um, and that even disturbs them. There'd be two stories, right? Um, <laughs> And then they try to figure out how to square that with something like evolutionary biology. And the assumption is, well, clearly these writers were doing kind of a timeless cosmology, right? Uh, and then we find out, oh boy, uh, we've got these pre-existing, these other stories, these other cosmologies, and we find out that there's some similarities. And then what that does is that causes people to say, I'm not sure I can trust this anymore. Because the assumption is the Bible is not only authority with respect to who God is, it's an authority with respect to everything, every topic, economics, politics. So if you're a real follower of Jesus, you'll vote this way, right? Uh, which is interesting because there's no political theories in Scripture that I know of. And there's certainly assumptions. There's certainly cosmological assumptions, economical assumptions, linguistic assumptions. But, um, you know, in terms of Scripture losing its place, I think actually what this does is it says – with respect to this question, Scripture is really helpful. With respect to finding out who Jesus is. Who, now, now, if you want to start thinking about what it means for God to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're going to have to do more than read the Bible. You're going to probably start looking at some things in metaphysics, right? You're going to try, try to make sense of these claims because the Scripture writers don't do that. They don't give you full-blown metaphysical theories of the second person of the Trinity or the nature of you name it. So even there, the authority is clearly truth indicating. Scripture is clearly giving you information. What it's not doing is it's not providing for you full-blown theories um, on a host of subjects. And so I, I'm hoping if somebody reads this and they're a science major, they won't go back and read the Bible and say, I can't read anymore because it doesn't fit with what I know in physics or biology. What they'll say is, God is not revealing a full-blown cosmology or a full-blown theory of economics or politics. And again, that can be disarming to people because it might sound like I'm saying the Bible is irrelevant. I'm not saying that. I'm saying anytime we think of an authority, we say, you know, if somebody said Fred Aquino, he's an authority. Well, I'm an authority with respect to John Henry Newman. If you said I'm an authority with respect to flute playing, 
that's just false. <laughs> it's just false. Or I'm, a, I'm a, an authority with respect to poetry. That's false. Um, if you said John Henry Newman, if you said the epistemology of theology, I would say, depending on the topics, sure. Um, so I don't know why we wouldn't think likewise when we think of like scripture or I don't know if that helps. Yeah, no, I think that's super helpful. Uh, I think that that's partially seems to be the fear that I've encountered is that when we start bringing desert fathers and mothers into the conversation and we start bringing um, different liturgies into the conversation, I think there's a there's a sort of discomfort and fear that, that we're trying to push something out yeah. in that process. I see. I see. Well, I mean, think about the... Patristic writers, for example, it's not as though they're not quoting scripture. <laughs> yeah. It's not as though they're not reading. So it's not that they're reinventing the wheel or they're making things. Well, they may be making things up occasionally. Who knows? <laughs> um, but they're not, they're not saying, okay, who cares about scripture? We're just going to sit around and reflect and we're going to sit around and, and speculate about the nature of the Trinity. No, the reason why they're talking about the Trinity is they're reading scripture and it seems to say God is Father seems to say God is Son, and then we don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. You know, if you look at the Nicene Creed, it's, it's quite, quite complicated. But they're trying to make sense of that. And so it's not that they all agree, because clearly Arius and Athanasius don't agree, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to make sense of these claims in Scripture that when you put them together, there seems to be some serious questions about, you know, what do you do with Romans chapter 1? God, what do you do with Acts 2.38? God made him Lord. But then, you know, Thomas says, my Lord, my God, or you baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what happens later is these early Christian writers, thinkers, fathers, start to say they've got to make sense of the date of Scripture. They have to see. And again, it, 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 they don't have an option to just check out and not think about this metaphysically because this is they want to, talk, want to know what the nature of this thing, this real thing or real person is. So then you have discussions about in what sense was the Son of God incarnate really a human person or had human qualities or characteristics? Um, good questions. Uh, but again, um, it's, like I said, it's not as though they're chucking scripture and then doing theology. They're doing theology in light of a wide range of things, liturgical experiences. I mean, how, you know, you go to church and you see these people worshiping Jesus like, why? <laughs> Why are they doing that liturgically? Well, they believe he's God incarnate, all right? Um, and go look, if you go look at these early Christian writings, you'll be hard-pressed to see Scripture being divorced from, uh, from what they're doing theologically. It'd be strange. But it would be weird to say that's all they're doing. They're just reading the Bible. They're not, in, they're not including experiences. They're not including liturgy. They're not including spiritual direction. They're not including catechesis. That's just, that's not true. I mean, there's a lot of things going on there. And they're probably doing different things, right? So creeds may have a different function than what scriptures are or catechism or liturgy or, you know, having teachers in the, in the faith or, you know, having fathers and mothers uh, clearly, as we know in life, when we start something, we need, we need experts. We need people to guide us. So you end up having um, the, these right. And if you look at, for example, the Desert Fathers, they're obsessed with the Sermon on the Mount. They're obsessed with Blessed are the Pure in Heart. I've written recently on John Cassian. He tries to understand not just 
objectively or intellectually what that means. He tries to imagine what it would mean to actually try to practice purity of heart as a way then be open to God. And so, as we know, in church, you can read scripture all day long and never open yourself up to God. And in order to do that, you're going to need some practices, right? Some spiritual guidance and practices, which are not, in my estimation, anti-biblical, contra-biblical. But expecting the Bible do, to do it all is exactly my point on authority. You're asking for it to be an authority with respect to everything. And I just think it's, it's, it's created more problems than solutions, in my estimation. No, I think I think there I think that statement seems to be more true at least of my experience of faith because it, at least in part my faith has been an experience and not just right. a a set of of knowledge and beliefs there's been something sort of weird and uh life-giving, off-putting, transformative. Mm-hmm. I like I I think that that tracks with my experience. Let me add, too, because there might be a listener who hears that and says, oh, boy, here we go. Now it's all experience, (laughs) right? Well, I think it's right and and, uh, fair to say we can reflect on those experiences because sometimes people make things up. Sometimes people are delusional. So so what I'm not suggesting is we close our eyes to these things that that people now – talk about like, oh, I just want to experience it. Well, you know, we want to be careful because sometimes we can see things that aren't there. Sometimes we can make stuff up or we can, you know, we can project onto something. So what I'm not, in fact, that's the whole point of discernment, right? Discernment is to test the spirits to see whether of God. So so what I'm not suggesting is canonical theism gives you, you know, a candy store. You can just get anything, can have anything. No, but but at the same time, we're also saying God may be, involved in these things that we take to be ordinary, Mm. um, like ordinary water or grape juice or wine. Um, And so, yes, I I, want to reaffirm experience, (laughs) but for somebody who might be a little nervous and say, oh, no, experience makes me nervous. I'm saying, well, we're not saying that these experiences or practices are never subject to critical examination. Mm. We think they should be. But we're not saying that everyone that enters the door has to do that before they encounter God. So we're coming up on the end of our time here. And I am curious, mm-hmm. as I think this, uh, the name of this project sort of belies, do you think seminary is scary? Uh, yes and no, <laughs> I guess I would say. <laughs> and I don't mean intentionally scary. You know, like, boo, <laughs> we're out to scare people. <laughs> we're out to, like, really scare them. Um, but scary in the following way, um, most of us don't want, I mean, if we're honest, we're not sure we want what we think to be analyzed critically. Mm. You know, who wants to go to the doctor and have the doctor to really say, you know, the truth about the matter, like your, your condition. We're, we're, we, we normally like to veer away from that kind of scrutiny until we realize it's important, right? It's important to go see the doctor. It's important to also recognize that when we're trying to make sense of our faith, it's going to be scary because there are going to be assumptions that we had that no longer work. And who wants to get rid of those, right? We, we like to hold on to things. And in some ways, it's not scary because in inste- instead of being with intentionally malicious people who are trying to take you down, the professors are interested in helping you to be formed in the faith in a way that's 
may be a little different. Um, like anything, right? You go from elementary school to middle school to high school. If you go to college and you go to graduate school, life is filled with transitions and you're either going to adjust to those transitions, you're either going to make the changes or you're going to be delusional in some sense. You're going to sit around and think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm always right, especially when nobody's, nobody's evaluating what I say, right? But now you have to open yourself up, and that's, that is scary. And so, but, again, it's not intentionally scary is the way I would put it. We're not intending – we don't wear costumes all day long and trying to scare <laughs> students into or away from faith. But we're trying to help them to think more carefully, critically, and lovingly in many ways, appreciatively of their faith. That that makes perfect sense to me. Um, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you. I appreciate you talking with me about this. Thanks. We're going to be wrong, and that can be hard for us to admit. Not all of us like to admit when we're wrong, but when we do, we find that it is simultaneously challenging and freeing. And I think that's part of what canonical theism can bring. In admitting that we're wrong, we also open ourselves up to worlds of thought and action that we maybe didn't consider before. Things that are hundreds or thousands of years old that have helped shape Christian thought all across the globe. And in that, it also presents a challenge. It says, yes, there's so much more out there than you thought. You should probably take it seriously. The task of the minister, or really any Christian leader, or really any Christian, is to take seriously the life of Christ. And in that, we will constantly be reevaluating what that means and how to do that best. So, we practice theology not so that we can gain more knowledge to just hold in our beliefs and create a sort of safe structure. We practice theology because we know there's so much more to learn that God is an infinite source of knowledge and wisdom, and that we've only just scratched the surface. And as we continue to practice that, we might find that there are other resources for bringing us closer together. And maybe, if we're lucky, we'll all look a little bit more like Jesus. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seminary Isn't Scary. Seminary Isn't Scary is a creation of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University. Our producer is Zane Goggins, and a special thanks to KCU for providing the studio space and all this wonderful equipment. I'm your host, Eric Massey. Until next time.